Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Our topic today is difficult to talk about because it is so tragic, but at the end of this conversation, I hope you see the many silver linings and reasons to be hopeful uh, within this conversation. We are, of course, talking about the emerald ash borer and its effect on North American ash trees, which for most of our five species is largely uh, elimination and death. But as you're going to hear from Dr. Kathleen Knight, who is a research ecologist for the United States, there's plenty reason for hope and plenty reason to keep working for these trees and the ecosystems they comprise. I can't do any further justice to this topic in this intro, so how about we just hear from Dr. Knight herself. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Kathleen Knight. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Kathleen Knight, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk with you today, but first, how about you introduce yourself? Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be on the show. I, I listen to the podcast and love it. So this, oh, awesome. is, this is big. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm Kathleen Knight. I'm a research ecologist with the U.S. Forest Service Northern Research Station, and I study American elm as well as emerald ash borer and ash. So a, a couple different a couple different things at the moment. Excellent. Well, it is long overdue that we talk about this subject, and I was really excited to have found your work and, and know that you are the right person to come on the show to give us a nice rundown of what's going on. But before we dive into what's going on with ashes and this horribly invasive beetle, what got you started in this? Were you always interested in ecology? And within that, were you interested in plants? Or did you kind of just find your way into the path of studying things like this, uh, you know, as you went through your education or career? Yeah. So I grew up in the beautiful mountains of West Virginia. Nice. And I was so lucky to be surrounded by these gorgeous forests. And I spent a lot of time out in the woods growing up. And then when I went to college at Hiram College, I took a few wonderful classes with Matt Hills, this wonderful botany teacher. I took botany with him and vascular plants. And he just sold me on <laughs> how cool plants are. I was just in love with plants. And so that's that's how I started to get into it. And I, I really liked kind of the field of plant ecology. So that kind of brought me to the University of Minnesota to uh, study some invasive plants. Mm. And then I ended up at the Forest Service, which turned out great. That's great. And I love hearing that moment where uh, a mentor or a professor or anyone like that influence of one person being like, this is cool. And that passion is contagious enough that it really just set your career on the track that it, that you're on today. Right. For sure. For sure. You know, it's, it's one, it's the, that kind of moment we did. We had a lot of, you know, time out in the woods with the vascular plants class and it was just fantastic. It really, I, I really got passionate about, about plants. And I like that you are an ecologist by training, too, because for the work that you do, studying interactions, I mean, that's the training, right? Is ecology is the interaction between organisms. And, you know, people think I'm a botanist. I'm an ecologist at heart, but it just it all starts with plants anyway. So they're just a wonderful system to be working in as an ecologist. For sure. Absolutely. 
Awesome. And so, you know, invasion seems to have been a little bit of a theme here. Uh, is that kind of how you fell into the Emerald Ashborough work with, with, with Ash? Yeah. Um, so I had studied for my dissertation uh, what happens in canopy gaps in forests, mm. particularly with colonization by uh, an invasive plant buckthorn, Rhamnus uh, cathartica. Yeah. And so I studied that in Minnesota, and then I was lucky enough to run into uh, Bob Long from the Forest Service at an Ecological Society of America meeting, nice. and we we got to chatting and. He he was saying, "Oh well, I'm I'm in Ohio, and we've got this new invasive pest, emerald ash borer, and we really want to understand what's going to happen in the forests. We want to understand the ecological impacts of emerald ash borer in the forests. What's going to fill in those gaps that are left as the ash trees die?" Mm-hmm. And up to that point, emerald ash borer was very recent, and it had been mostly entomologists studying it, you know, with no surprise, right? It's an insect. So there were entomologists studying it. So he kind of pulled me into that as a forest ecologist. Um, and it, it just happened to work out really well that I ended up in Ohio and was able to start on as a postdoc with him wow. looking at those ecological impacts after I finished up my PhD. Wow. And there's some hints of really important perspective in what you just said there is that this was something new and entomologists were really just starting to get their head wrapped around it when you first learned about it. And now fast forward X amount of years and we've seen devastation on a scale I still can't get my head wrapped around. And so to me, one of the most alarming things about the emerald ash borer is the speed at which it all happened, right? You don't think of seeing a species going from being one of the most dominant trees or a group of trees, I should say, the most dominant ones in many forest types to almost non-existent overnight an ecological viewpoint there. Right, right. It happens so fast. And I I watched it as I set up these monitoring plots in Ohio, you know, I would set them up ahead of emerald ash borer, kind of get baseline conditions. And then I'd watch emerald ash borer sweep through and over, you know, a period of just several years, all, all of these places we, we were, you know, watching these ash trees just disappear, the, the larger trees. It was, it was really, uh, just impressive to see that and horrifying at the same time to to watch that happen. It is tough as a scientist like yourself to kind of, I'm sure, parse those two bins out because it is, it's, it's a fascinating ecological experiment and you're seeing something novel happening and unfolding at a rapid pace. But then, you know, the other side of you, the human side of you goes, oh my God, we're losing so much. Right, right. Yeah. You, you watch these beautiful big trees and, and, you've watched them die and it's, it's super depressing. And at the same time, I totally geek out analyzing the data and <laughs> looking at exactly how quickly they die and yeah. if there are differences. And so it's, yeah, it is, it is an interesting juxtaposition of, of being excited about the cool data and being really depressed at losing these big ash trees. And therein lies one of the major conundrums of an ecological scientist. For sure. Especially in the modern times. But, you know, people listening will probably have heard about this, especially if you live in eastern North America. You've probably heard at least mentioned. But let's give, before we jump into the core of what you've been doing over these years, uh, give a brief overview. Like, what is the situation? How did it start uh, if we can even kind of pinpoint the start and and what what are the effects? I mean, obviously death of trees, but like how? <laughs> right. So the emerald ash borer is a beetle 
from Eastern Asia, from China. It was accidentally brought over in wood packing material, probably in the 1990s, but it is really hard to detect when it first shows up. So no one even noticed something was wrong until 2002. And then it took a little while to figure out, you know, exactly what's going on. What, what is this bug that's, you know, it's clearly something no one, you know, no one knew of of here. So it's something new. And there was really very little written about it in China. It's not a problem there. Hmm. But when it comes here, it encounters all of our ash species that don't have an evolutionary history with it. It's able to kill those trees. And what the ash borer does is it's it's really a beautiful green beetle, the adult yeah. beetle. The emerald ash borer is a terrific name for it. It emerges in the spring and eats some ash leaves, but not very much, mates, and then lands on the bark of the tree and lays its eggs. And then the larvae, when they hatch, burrow into the tree and they feed just beneath the bark of the tree. And if you know tree physiology, like that's the really important part of the tree, right? Just yeah. beneath the bark. You've got the xylem and the phloem there. That's the tree's circulatory system. So as they're feeding there beneath the bark, once you get enough of them in there, they're just creating these tunnels, these galleries as they're feeding. And that girdles the tree, cuts off its ability to transport water and nutrients and can kill the tree. And all of our ash trees in the region are susceptible. We have five species of ash here in Ohio white ash, green ash, blue ash, black ash, and pumpkin ash. And they, they all have susceptibility to it. Blue ash is a little less susceptible, it looks like. It, hmm. it can be killed, but fewer of them seem to be killed. But the others, you know, we, we saw 99% mortality of the large trees or more. Wow. Um, and and it, uh, it really uh, just takes out these larger size classes of trees. It doesn't seem to affect trees that are smaller than about an inch diameter at breast height, so the hmm. trunk diameter of an inch. And, and really, trees between like one inch and, and three inches, it doesn't prefer. It can kill those. You see some of those dying, but it doesn't seem to impact those as much as it does those much larger trees. So you're left in the forests with this, what people have termed an orphaned cohort of oh. ash trees. So it's just the younger trees because it's not a species that has long-lived seed banks. So once the big trees are dead, that's it. What wow. you're left with is the, that smaller size class of small saplings and seedlings in the understory. And those are, those are the future of ash. And so we're, we're continuing to watch those over time to find out what's going to happen with them. Are they going to get picked off as they get up to a susceptible size or are some of them going to make it? Wow. Whew. I mean, I don't care how familiar you are with that story. Just hearing it repeated is it just sends chills down my spine. Because again, you said 2002 is when we really started going like, oh, yeah, something's going on here. It's only been 20 years. I mean, I remember 2002. So that's saying right. something. <laughs> Wasn't that long ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. terrifying. And so, you know, part of it is just the speed at which this has happened has has really kind of hurt our ability to kind of respond to it. But one of the reasons I was attracted to your work is this idea of monitoring and the the, the ability to do this long-term monitoring to, to look for patterns, to see what's happening. And so talk to us a little bit about the importance of long-term monitoring in a, a rapid invasive species issue like this. So the long-term monitoring is really a powerful way to understand the impacts of an invasive species on these ecosystems. You can 
if you're able to get baseline conditions and monitor before it comes through, while it's coming through and has that initial impact, and then after that kind of aftermath forest, what happens, what fills in those gaps, um, what happens to the, the remnant populations of ash that remain on the landscape, that's a really powerful way to understand what those long-term dynamics look like of this, of this insect and of, of the trees that it affects as well, and the whole ecosystems that it, that it affects. So we're doing that both in Ohio and in Pennsylvania at the Allegheny National Forest. We've set up long-term plots where we started monitoring before emerald ash borer had an impact, and then as it's come through and, and killed the ash trees. And we've not only monitored the ash trees, we've monitored the emerald ash borer populations with purple panel traps. Mm. We've monitored all of the other woody species in the plots. And then in a subset of the plots, we did some monitoring of the herbaceous plant species in those sites as well. And I have colleagues who have also kind of built on this terrific network of pots and looked at coarse woody debris. What happens when you kill all the trees? Of course, you end up with this pulse of dead tree matter, right? Mm. So looking at what happens with coarse woody debris, looking at carbon cycling, you can really kind of stack these, these other types of experiments and measurements onto that study and, and understand more of a holistic view of what's happening in these ecosystems. That's a refreshing perspective to hear because you you hear this on face value and go, oh, you're just really trying to figure out what's going to happen to this species or the five species, whether, you know, which one's more abundant in your area or not. But then you start to, you know, as an ecologist, tease out those effects on the surrounding ecosystem. And it's not like these are rare trees on the landscape to begin with. I mean, some areas, ash were dominant players and understanding how the death ripples through the landscape is equally as important to understanding what's going on with the species itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the answer to that question of, you know, how, how is it going to impact these, you know, forests? You ask an ecologist that question, the answer is always, it depends, right? <laughs> so it depends, yeah. uh, you know, it depends on which, you know, which ash species you're talking about and what kind of ecosystem it's in and what other tree species are there to fill in the gaps and the density of ash. Because as you mentioned, some of these ecosystems that are really sensitive to emerald ash borer are places that have ash as a dominant tree species they may not have very many other tree species that are able to fill in those gaps. And you can have just tremendous change in those systems, even to non-forest conditions. So you can take, you know, black ash swamps in the further northern regions and see the black ash disappear. And the concern is that the water table will rise. Mm. Other tree species can't get established. And you'll, you'll end up with herbaceous plants, which there's nothing wrong with herbaceous plants. I love herbaceous plants, but <laughs> in places where it's supposed to be a forest and there are other species that depend on it being a forest, that's a pretty important change. And in Ohio, one of the, the most impacted places we see is green ash floodplains. Mm. Those are places where the green ash can actually be dominant in those systems there's elm as well in those systems. So elm probably used to be dominant in a lot of these right. riparian areas. Dutch elm disease took it out. Ash became dominant. And now emerald ash borer is taking out the ash. So we're, we're seeing these riparian systems, which are kind of sensitive systems anyway, with a lot of disturbance going on from flooding. And you're taking out a major dominant tree species in those ecosystems. So we're 
we're very interested in kind of understanding that. In other places where ash is less dominant, and there are plenty of other tree species, there's a good mid-story of maples and other things, the other tree species fill in those gaps. Um, there doesn't appear to be a huge change in the understory. Understory light levels stay pretty consistent. Hmm. We don't get a huge you know, explosion of invasion, invasive plants where you have a pretty low density of ash and there's other species filling in. But we are also seeing, we had some collaborators look at fungal diversity in the fungal soil fungal communities. And mm-hmm. those do seem to be something that is that is different when there's an ash tree right there. And when you talk to, to folks who are morel mushroom hunters, oh. um, they will also tell you that, that ash are, are important and huh. the places around ash are, are likely to have morels. So I, I think there are you know, even if there aren't impacts that are always obvious, there may be some more subtle impacts of losing the ash, even in those systems where they're not a dominant species. I am so happy you brought that up because, yeah, it's easy to measure things we're aware of, especially if they're easy to see. But as an ecologist, you know how much we don't know, and especially if it's below soil or small even. I mean, even common species, we, we, we sometimes know very little about. So the ripples, the, even the ones we can measure are alarming, but even more alarming is what we're not measuring. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Whew. Absolutely. I know some of the land managers, uh, actually both places I've lived over the last few years, both in Illinois and in western New York, were, were very worried about green ash decline and how the canopy opens up and suddenly reed canary grass and phragmites go, oh, sun, let's go crazy again. Yes, we, ha- we have some of those sites. <laughs> so some of my sites are, have been completely invaded by phragmites or, or reed canary grass here in Ohio. We do see that happening where, where there were you know, a lot of ash and there weren't other species to fill in. You got a lot of light into that understory and, and those invasives just take off. We also have honeysuckle here in Ohio as a shrubby invasive. And Brian Hoven's done a lot of work with me on looking at how it's impacted by the loss of ash. And we do see it increasing as well in places where there was a lot of ash and you have large canopy gaps opening up, it's really able to increase cover and abundance pretty quickly. Bummer. Oof. Yeah, uh, just kind of compounds the issue of how alarming this all is, but you get this sense that these species, these invasive species that really go after a, a genus, an entire genus of plants, right? That's, to me, even scarier because... You know, we might not easily recognize the difference between the five species of ash that you mentioned, but they are different. They have different niches. You can find them in different habitats. In fact, that's the only surefire way I can tell green and white ash apart is where am I? <laughs> um, right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. They, they are each unique species and, and important in their own ways. I mean, white ash is more typical of upland forests, uh, you know, as you say, you know, it's where, where you are. White and green can be a little difficult to tell apart. There's a few ways looking at the seeds and the twigs, but if you're at the bottom of a tree that's 60 feet tall, it's a little tough to look yeah. at look at those features. <laughs> uh, and then the green ash, of course, is in, you know, more abundant in floodplain forests. Uh, it's, it's the one that you'll really see in those kind of systems. And it can be in swamp type forests as well. 
And then we see it's Ohio's in a really cool spot because we're kind of at the northern end of the range of pumpkin ash, which mm. is a more swamp type species that uh, has a range that goes quite far south. And then we're at the southern end of the range of black ash, which is another swamp type species mm. that has a range that goes pretty far north into Canada. And so we get wetland forest ecosystems that have a mix of pumpkin ash, black ash, and green ash all wow. together in, in that system because huh. we're right kind of at the nexus of, of those of those species. That's cool. So that's really interesting and helps you stay on your toes with your ID <laughs> skills. Uh, yeah. And then we've, we've got, which one did I not talk about yet? Blue. Blue ash. Yes. And it's the weird one. It's like the odd stepchild. So if you look at the phylogenetics of ash, blue ash is like way out there on its own clay doing oh, its own thing. So, so our other ash species, our white ash and green ash and black ash are actually more closely related to European and Asian ash species than any of them are to blue ash. Hmm. It's like wow. kind of doing its own own thing out there. And it's, it's so cool. Like it's got these uh, square twigs that can actually be kind of winged like a euonymus, you know, it's just, it's a really interesting, interesting species. And I think that's part of why emerald ash borer isn't affecting it as much hmm. because it's, it's less related to these other species. If you're an emerald ash borer, sensing uh, volatiles that are emitted by the trees, it probably smells a little different to you than wow. the other species that you're used to looking for. So when there have been choice uh, tests done, um, Therese Poland's done a lot of this work, looking at which, which species an emerald ash borer would choose to land on and feed on, they go for the other species rather than blue ash, hmm. just because, you know, it's, it's a little, it's different. Yeah. Um, However, once you put emerald ash borer eggs on it, or once emerald ash borer has killed off all of the other trees and only blue ash is left, it is able to affect those trees. It is able to kill some of the blue ash. Hmm. So we are seeing some of the blue ash being killed by emerald ash borer in, in some of our sites. That's fascinating to hear. And it's cool to hear the phylogenetic side of it because... On face value, my instinct would say, oh, there's some sort of resistance genes or something like that. Like it produces a chemical it doesn't like, but it's literally sounds like detection and it just smells funny enough that perhaps they're not, it's not the first choice. Not to say it can't happen and it won't happen, but wow. <laughs> right. That's what we think right now is yeah, going on. That's with, solid with that. hypothesis. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. And so again, just kind of reiterate if they get on a blue ash, like if you add the eggs and the larvae can go through the motions, there's nothing inherent about blue ash at that point that necessarily resists those larvae from doing the damage they do. Right. So, so that's the work that Jennifer Cook has actually been doing is she'll actually grow the trees in a greenhouse setting and then put emerald ash borer eggs on them to see what happens. Cause that is, you know, that's, that's the test of, is the tree able to resist right. these these insects in some way and with blue ash some of them do have resistance against emerald ash borer and some of them don't so there's there's a lot of variation um, among different uh, blue ash trees that are out there on the landscape and she is seeing as well we're, we're finding some very rare resistance in other ash species as well so wow. one of the one of the days um 
that I was out monitoring my mini monitoring plots and counting hundreds and hundreds of dead ash trees all day, uh, which is super depressing. Um, (laughs) We were on our way back out of the woods and saw this super healthy green ash tree in the floodplain. And it was so bizarre because every other ash tree that we had encountered that day was dead. And that, you know, that was a huge surprise. And I went back and, and started talking to Jennifer about this because she was actually looking at breeding for resistance in ash Ooh. by breeding North American ones with Asian ash trees, hmm. kind of like the American chestnut program. Right. And so I, I went and talked to her and I'm like, there's an ash tree in our floodplain and it's healthy, you know, what is going on? And so we, we sampled it. We did a survey of that floodplain and found a bunch of others that were also healthy. It was much less than 1% of the original population of ash, but here they were and they were healthy. Hmm. And when you start off with so many ash trees on the landscape, even half a percent of the trees leaves you with a lot of trees. Wow! So yeah. that was that was really promising to be able to find those. And then she was able to start propagating those, making genetically identical copies of them through grafting wow. and actually testing them out with emerald ash borer eggs to see, you know, which, which of them had resistance that could be used in a resistance breeding program. And then by breeding those trees that have resistance together, you can create progeny with even better resistance. Well, geez, I'll take any silver lining I can get at this point. That's extremely encouraging. (laughs) It was really, really nice to have something encouraging about my research after (laughs) several years of just like gloom and doom and dead trees and invasive plants coming in. So that was, that was wonderful. And I've, I've kind of pivoted in my work, you know, we're, we're still monitoring like the long-term impacts, but we're now looking at um, management strategies, including, you know, helping Jennifer find these surviving lingering ash trees, monitoring how they're doing out there and yeah. long-term in the field. Are these trees going to survive over the long-term? And then, you know, looking at other kind of integrated pest management strategies as well. Wow. Well, that's encouraging, at least uh, something to kind of help you sleep at night. But, you know, it's one of those... <laughs> One of those things where it pays to get out there. It pays to be doing these surveys and monitoring and and looking for these patterns because when you see something like a a living tree in a sea of nothing but dead trees, you go, what's going on here? And if you weren't out there, you would never have found it. Exactly. Exactly. You've got to be out in the woods and and looking around for things that are odd or, you know, that catch your eye when you're out there. It's a common theme through this podcast if anyone's been listening for a while. So Yes. Excellent. <laughs> but with that in mind, you're still seeing sad stuff. Uh, but you mentioned the sort of orphaned generation, all of these seedlings that are coming up because they're just not at the size where they're necessarily that vulnerable. And so what kind of work or, or hope do you have with that? And, and do those seedlings potentially have, I don't know, I guess resistance to that? Or is it just kind of like, we'll know as soon as they get to be the size where it becomes an issue? Right. So we actually set up a few monitoring plots up in Michigan near the very core of where emerald ash borer first started. So some of the longest infested places Mm. in the country. And one of the really promising things that we're seeing there is there are trees that were in that smaller size class that were not preferred by emerald ash borer during that initial wave that are now big enough that they're actually reproducing. So that's 
that's terrific to see. And I know other other folks have seen, you know, trees that have been killed in emerald ash borer and then re-sprouted and the sprouts grew large enough to actually reproduce. So there are these trees out there on the landscape. We're kind of watching to see what happens with, with those trees. And across our plots in Ohio too, some of the areas of Ohio have been dead now um, for well over a decade, almost 15 years. So, Jeez. so we're we're watching, you know, we're watching those at this point too to see what's happening with these trees because they're getting, you know, the ones that were too small at that time are getting bigger, especially in places that there are gaps. We know emerald ash borer is still around. We continue to trap it on our emerald ash borer traps that we put out. So it's at much lower densities than mm. it used to be. When we were trapping emerald ash borer at the peak of infestation um, during that first wave on one of those purple panel traps, which I don't know if people have seen those, they used them ahead of emerald ash borer to try to detect it originally. But we would catch like 200 emerald ash borers on one of these sticky traps during Whoa. that peak. And now we're catching it bounces around. It's, it's interesting. Um, it, it bounces around between years, but we're catching somewhere between like five and 30 oh, wow. on, on a trap. So it's at much lower densities than it was during the peak, but it's still there. Right. And we don't know if it'll, you know, increase again as those ash trees are getting up to susceptible size and providing a good food source for it. Or if at this point, you know, it's come into some kind of balance with there've been biocontrol, um, hmm parasitoid wasps released oh. that that may be able to help keep its population you know under control enough to protect those smaller trees so we're not sure what's happening and those smaller trees have also been out on the landscape right for the last 15 years and so any that are really susceptible and really attractive to emerald ash borer you would think those ones probably have gotten picked off during that 15 yeah. years, even with it, it's lower densities. So it's the ones that are there may have, you know, moderate to resistance to emerald ash borer and a, a, a rare few may have very high resistance to emerald ash borer. Hmm. So the resistance is more of a continuum than a yes or no kind of thing. Oh, gee, biology. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting to see. And so that continuum, what happens with an individual tree depends on the density of emerald ash borer. So when you have really high levels of emerald ash borer, like we did during that first wave, an ash tree needed to have like really bulletproof resistance to emerald ash borer to be able to survive. But when emerald ash borer is at much lower densities, a tree with moderate resistance may be able to survive. Hmm. So it's it's a it's a really complex picture out there of what's, you know, what's happening over the long term, which is what makes it so fascinating to study yeah. you know, from a, from a biological perspective. Yeah. I'm just thinking of like the maths you must have to do to kind of tease these different ideas out. But this idea of sort of like the boom and bust aspect of a pest is fascinating in and of itself because you kind of think of these things moving through and kind of staying at the abundance that they're at, that they're always going to be that 200 beetles per trap level of mm -hmm. abundance but yeah if their food sources they killed it all off you'd expect them to kind of die off too and then that the the sad part is is like does it come back <laughs> when the ash <Ashram> right <laughs> right absolutely yeah we it, the, that first wave kind of takes that 
typical, you know, predator prey dynamic that we see in the ecological literature, where once it's once it's killed off its food source, you know, the ash population crashes, and then right afterwards, the emerald ash borer population crashes because they yeah. eat everything; they don't have anything left to eat. <laughs> so it's it's going to be interesting to see if we see kind of cycles over long periods of time, since these are long-lived species, uh, the ash anyway, or long-lived species, or, or what we're going to see right. um, as we move forward. Yeah. Ooh. Interesting uh, what's going to happen, I think, in the next 10 to 15 years at the least. But, you know, thinking about it from what you mentioned in terms of resistance and potential breeding programs, 20 years is not that long when you're thinking about a tree and the life cycle a tree has to go through to reach reproductive size. And so is there hope in terms of like breeding that there's maybe some evidence that we can breed a resistant tree or, you know, you mentioned biocontrols in there or even just sort of pest management on a specimen to specimen basis. You know, I've done some trips to the south and found, oh, wow, they haven't gotten here yet. You can still see big ash trees in the canopy, which let me tell you, one of the most remarkable experiences knowing what it was, but is there hope in that or are we just way too early days in this rapid invasion scenario to really say? I think there's a lot of hope. I, I, I think the future of ash management will be kind of an integrated pest management strategy where different types of you know actions are used together in situation specific ways. So what I mean by that is you know maybe you have resistant trees that have been bred and you also release the parasitoid wasps to mm. kind of help keep those emerald ash borer populations down a bit. We've seen a lot of great work doing genetic conservation, uh, collecting ash seeds and preserving those for the long term so that we can conserve the genetic diversity of ash ahead of emerald ash borer coming through and wiping them out. And that's that's really important because as we breed these resistant trees, you know, down the line, we're going to want to have genetically adapted populations for different places. So I, I think all of all of those actions together are are really important. And you know, of course, the more we can do to slow the spread of EAB to places where it isn't yet, buys us more time to do the science, you know, to, to work on all of these different strategies so that there's more tools in the toolbox once Emerald Ashbore does get to an area. So the work that Jennifer Cook has done on the breeding is showing really promising results. Mm. You know, she's already been able to show that some of these trees that are survivor trees are able to actually kill the emerald ash borer larva at higher rates, you know, than a susceptible control tree, which really doesn't. They're, they don't kill them at quite as high a rate as the ash trees from Asia are able to do. But then once you take some of these resistant trees uh, that have some amount of resistance that are native to North America and you breed them together, some of their progeny have rates of killing emerald ash borer larvae that are closer to what we see in Asia. Mm. So, you know, once you get to second generation trees, you can get this much better resistance. So she's seen that with white ash. She's also had a lot of success breeding with uh, green ash. Um, so those two species are, are going really well. We are really interested in black ash. It's proving a little bit trickier um, for a couple of reasons, but it, it is also showing that ability to kill off emerald oh. ash borer larva. So, oh. so it's, it's really, it's interesting to see, you know, it's, it's a very rare trait because it 
there was no selective pressure for it before <laughs> right. a mobash borer showed up. So it's a really promising line of work, I think, with the resistance breeding. But any of these measures, I think, will work better when they're in concert with, with other strategies right. um, as we go forward. And as we learn about how to plant these trees back out into the landscape, there may also be silvicultural strategies or, or other things that you can do as well to have resistance hold up better. You know, an ash tree that's healthy and growing well and growing fast is going to do better than a stressed ash tree at any of these resistance measures. So we'll have to understand a little bit better how that works on the landscape and what kind of management ash needs, even these more resistant populations. So I think there's there's going yeah. to be plenty plenty more to do as we as we move forward with all of these. Call it job security, I guess. <laughs> yes, for sure, for but sure. It, you know, in in hearing all of that, which is really great, I, I always want to you know sing the successes, no matter how big or small they are. But you painted a picture here that kind of has two facets of of good things. A law of large numbers, like you said, often many of these species are dominant species, even when you have lots of them, a small fraction is still a lot of trees. So that's encouraging. But the other side of it too is kind of timing. I mean, this isn't something that happened in the early 1900s, late 1800s, when we weren't even talking about the concept of invasive species. It hit at a time when this was really part of the lexicon. And so, you know, the combination of two factors just shows that like, if you are, you know, you, you couldn't have planned for this, right? But at least it's better now than before, I guess, uh, to have something like this happen in a way. Yeah, we've been a really able to jump on it. It's it's been amazing to see in just you know 20 years how much work has been done <laughs> on emerald ash borer. I mean, we went from knowing pretty much nothing about it to understanding its biology, understanding how to protect trees with insecticides, knowing more about genetic diversity of ash and how we should think about conserving genetic diversity you know, understanding resistance. It's, it's been just an explosion of work by a number of really fantastic researchers. So I, I think it is good that it, you know, it happened at a time when people were ready to, to jump on that and yeah. pick up that work and, and work together on it. Yeah. Yeah. But from sort of the genetic diversity and, and, and seed storage standpoint, you mentioned that they're not necessarily like a seed banking species. Are these recalcitrant species or can we actually store seeds long term if done correctly? If done correctly, the folks I've talked to who are experts in this feel like they can store them for at least 20 years. Oh, wow. Okay. So they, they can be stored if it's, if it's done correctly. Well, that's encouraging. And so backing up a little bit from the species perspective, going to more of the ecosystem perspective, because we can't, uh, again, rule out the fact that this is impacting more than the species themselves. You know, is there sort of a line of or lane, I guess, of research or efforts to kind of look at what happens in, say, a floodplain when all of the green ash that were once the dominant players in that system die out? Like, what do you do? Right, right. And one of the things that we've been working on, so at the moment, we don't have resistant ash trees to plant back out yet. That's mm. still a few steps away, right? right. We, ha we have to have enough genetic diversity of those trees and have them in seed orchards to produce seeds. So we're not there yet. So what do you do if you have a, a floodplain full of green ash, you don't have other tree species that are in there? 
And so we've actually started doing some work underplanting other tree species hmm. in, the, in some of these ecosystems. And one of the species we've planted is American elm from our breeding program on American elm Ooh. that has resistance to Dutch elm disease. Yes. So it's kind of one of these, you know, good karma, full circle things <laughs> where the elm got taken out by Dutch elm disease. And now the ash is getting taken out by emerald ash borer and we're putting some elm back in. So that's, that's one of the species that we're, we're testing in these studies you know, the big lesson is that you want diversity in right. any ecosystem. Um, so we're not just going to plant elm back out. We're, you know, we're planting multiple species in Ohio. There's usually maples everywhere already. So we weren't planting maple. We planted some sycamores and some pin oaks nice. along, along with the elms in our study. And just to understand, I mean, floodplains are, are really tough places to work and, and do restoration because yeah. it's, you know, not only are you dealing with the typical problems of deer coming and trying to browse all your newly planted seedlings or raccoons or other, other things going after them, you know, you also have flooding. And so they're going to be, <laughs> you know, under, underwater and they're, the water may be moving rapidly. And so you have to think about what kind of, you know, if you're trying to protect these trees from the deer, are your tree protectors something that's going to hold up to six feet of rapidly moving flood water? So it's, it's a really challenging place to do restoration. And it's been a learning experience to, to look at, we've looked at a bunch of different strategies and try to learn, you know, from some of that work. Uh, what seems to have worked so far the best is to plant fairly large trees when we plant them and then fence those with like a woven wire fence that's really well secured into the ground. And that way the floodwater can kind of move through the woven wire fence, but the deer can't eat your seedling down to the ground. Yeah. You know, that, that seems to be the best, best strategy at this point. And, and we also learned that elms are really highly preferred by deer. So they, they will definitely eat your elm trees um, if you, if they are not protected. So it's, it's been, it's been neat to, you know, start working on that as well, because I think that's part of this integrated pest management is, is the restoration of places that are being impacted by emerald ash borer, because there are going to be a lot of places impacted mm -hmm. and thinking about what can we do in these ecosystems so they don't turn into a bunch of reed canary grass or phragmites, <laughs> because once they get to that point, it right. is really hard to walk that back. So if we can prevent it from getting there by having a bunch of trees out there ready to just pop into those gaps as the, as the gaps open up, that would be ideal. That's really exciting to hear that sort of complete picture and approach, because not only are you dealing with species conservation and, and a legacy of pests past, right? But it's also getting good science done and getting the data you need and generating it as you go. It's not this analysis paralysis of like, well, well we don't really know. We don't have enough data. It's no, we got to restore these systems because if we don't, we're going to lose them. Why not turn this into an opportunity to collect data as we go, to learn through the process, to make it better the next time or the next spot? I love that holistic approach because often it is pitched as one thing at a time and we don't have time for one thing at a time anymore. Right, right. Yeah, we have to we have to start acting. I mean, so many of the, the forest managers I talk to, I mean, they're all, they're, they're like one step ahead a lot of the time. They're already <laughs> yeah. like starting to act and they're, you know, they want advice from the scientists on what to do, but they, you know, they understand the importance. Like we've got to get in there. We've got to do something. 
And, and so that's, you know, I think that's a really exciting place to work because that's something that, you know, we can actually help inform restoration on a lot of, a lot of acres, a lot of different places. And we can learn from the experience of, of managers and we can learn from our experiments and try to improve this process for people as they're, as they're taking it on. Yeah. I mean, there's really no other options if we care about ecology and, and having an ecosystem to support, you know, us, this, regardless of where you stand, this can impact us in the long run. And, and people, the more people that understand that from different angles, the better off we're going to be. So kudos to the holistic approach. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks. Thanks. And I have to say that taking a holistic approach, it's, it's not just me. It's because I have a number of collaborators who have expertise in so many different areas. So, you know, working with people like Jennifer Cook, who has expertise in genetics, Charlie Flower, who has expertise in ecosystem ecology, you know, Rachel Kapler and Brian Hoven have have been instrumental in doing some of these population viability studies by Rachel and looking at some of these other ecosystem things like honeysuckle and coarse woody debris that that Brian has taken on. I mean, there's there's just been a number of people who have been involved and really helping helping us understand a more holistic view of this work. And then at the Allegheny National Forest, Alex Royo and Jason Kilgore and I have been in, involved in an experiment there understanding white ash on the Allegheny and you know, taking that holistic view over there too. It's a very different ecosystem than what we have in Ohio. In Ohio, we've got <laughs> these little postage stamps, you know, ash forests that are surrounded by either suburban landscapes or agricultural landscapes. And at the Allegheny, it's this nice, you know, large contiguous forest area. Yeah. And so understanding, you know, how's that going to look different? And I'm, I'm just really lucky to work with so many people who can do this amazing work and provide other areas of expertise so that we can work together on a lot of it. Wow, that's excellent. Yeah, I mean, no one should be siloed in this because that's just way too much for one person, but it does truly take a village. And it's good because the village does need the nature that supports it. So, (laughs) yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so for those listening, uh, which will be a wide swath of the listeners that are affected by this, that know where ash are, know where ash were, I guess would be the better context for a lot of listeners. But for those that are fired up, want to learn more, want to learn more about the work you're doing and kind of keep a pulse on the work that you're going to continue to be doing, uh, do you have social media or resources they can go and search out uh, to learn more? Sure. Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter at Kathleen S. Knight. Um, the Forest Service Northern Research Station is also on Twitter at USFS underscore NRS. And so you'll hear about um, some of my work and then a lot of other people's work um, in the Northern Research Station. And I'm actually giving a talk on the EAB University webinar series Ooh. coming up in February. Perfect. So if you, you want to see a bunch of graphs and get excited about looking at the data. Uh, I'll be showing some of that uh, during that presentation as well. Excellent. Well, you are addressing the right audience for that. So yeah, please make sure to send the links. I will post all of them in the show notes as I usually do. And oh, doc- great. Dr. Knight, I have to say, you know, these topics are very difficult to talk about long term because it just can be so depressing. But hearing from you, I feel better. Everyone should feel a little bit more encouraged, but thank you so much for all of the efforts you're putting in. 
also a shout out to all of your colleagues for all of the collaborative work that you're doing. But uh, most importantly, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it. I can't thank you enough for everything, especially the work that you're doing to uh, protect and, and understand this amazing set of trees. Thank you so much for having me on today. Of course. Really enjoyed it. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and uh, go Ash. <laughs> go Ash. <laughs> Cheers. Yep. All right. Like I said, never an easy topic to talk about, but plenty of reasons to remain hopeful in there and plenty of avenues for continued research and efforts to not only protect the trees themselves, but the ecosystems that depend on them. I thank Dr. Knight for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And of course, you can find all of the relevant links in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. She did want me to mention that because she works for the United States, all of their publications are free. They're not hidden behind paywalls. And I've put up a link where you can find those papers and read the science firsthand for yourselves without having to pay for it. Before I let you go, I just want to mention that my book, In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, is on sale for the holidays. Head on over to Mango Publishing to pick that up for a discounted price. I really appreciate it. And of course, continue to support the show through Patreon and our merch sales, which all of the links, again, are in the show notes for this episode, as well as all previous episodes. But otherwise, thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying this. And if you are, make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.